I said, look, we want to make as much of the proceedings here open to the public. And then I said, we're going to make them present and we're going to live stream it. And I'm going to solicit questions for the candidates. The Libyan public enjoyed watching their political class at long last face some tough questions. Libyans started to call it the national barbecue session. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to The Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. With us today is Stephanie Williams, who until a matter of days ago was the acting special representative of the United Nations Secretary General in Libya. Just before her tenure concluded, she shepherded a remarkable process that formed a united interim executive and has put the country on the path to national elections in December this year. A moment of real hope after a decade of conflict and instability. Stephanie Williams, welcome to The Mediator's Studio. Thank you, Adam. It's wonderful to be with you. Stephanie, I want to set the scene a little. You know the Middle East and North Africa well, having worked in many countries in the region as a US diplomat. And by 2018, you're chargé d'affaires for Libya. The country is divided between two rival governments, the UN-backed Government of National Accord, or GNA, based in Tripoli, and a rival parliament, the House of Representatives, based in Tobruk, in the east of the country, and backed by the Libyan National Army of General Haftar. And you get to know some of the key power brokers in the conflict during this time, including a meeting with Fayez al-Sarraj, the Prime Minister of the GNA in Tripoli in May. What was going through your mind as you flew into Tripoli? The U.S. Embassy to Libya was located in Tunisia because the Americans we pulled out of Libya in 2014. So I was really looking forward to getting back into Libya, even for a day visit. And the only way I could do that was to join the AFRICOM general, the U.S. general in charge of the Africa Command, then Tom Waldhauser. And so we flew in off of a U.S. Navy ship located in the Mediterranean on uh, several Marine Osprey tilt rotor aircraft. It was rather a dramatic entry into the naval base in Tripoli. I think probably everyone on the coast saw it. Not entirely subtle, but we proceeded into the naval base for what was a very uh, pleasant meeting with the GNA Prime Minister, Fayez Siraj. And while we were sitting there with him, I looked up and behind him on the wall was a painting that Colonel Qaddafi had commissioned and had been sitting, I guess, on that wall for many years that depicted the burning of the U.S. naval ship, the USS Philadelphia <laughs> in Tripoli Harbor in the year of uh, 1805. And it was at that point that I realized uh, just how complicated the Libyophile is and the complex relationship also between the United States and the Libyan people and, of course, the international community and the Libyan people. And shortly afterwards, you were appointed Deputy UN Special Representative to Hassan Salameh who's also been a guest uh, in the Mediator studio. Why did you want to work with him? Well, I met uh, Hassan in uh, late January 2018 when I first took up my duties at the Libya External Office. Of course, I had admired his work from afar, and he's one of the Arab world's foremost intellectuals, a great mind. And we had spent many hours during my tenure as the charge 
you know, obviously talking about Libya, and I really admired uh, his determination to somehow take this complicated case, the case of Libya, and what had been a very negative relationship, frankly, with the international community, and to take the conversation to the Libyan people, to listen to the Libyans. And when he proposed that I join him as his deputy, it was a very quick response. You and Hassan work hand in glove, and you were tested almost immediately in August of that year when militias from outside Tripoli launched an attack on forces loyal to the GNA. Take me into those ceasefire talks. So it really was quite extraordinary where we gathered representatives of the forces that were attacking Tripoli. And then, of course, the Tripoli groups who were defending the capital in several intensive uh, sessions, which I obviously highlighted the strength of Hassan as a mediator. And eventually we got all of the groups, save one, to sign up to the ceasefire agreement. But it's what we did after. It's how we leveraged the ceasefire agreement to really start to address the underlying drivers of the conflict, which, of course, are economic and the dire need for security sector reform throughout the country. So it's what we did with the ceasefire that I think became ultimately much more significant. Well, let's talk about economics as an area which is often neglected in peace processes. Give us a sense in simple terms of the problems you were trying to fix. So conflicts in rentier states, rentier economies are quite different than in other settings. And so Hassan had early on recognized the sort of political economy dimensions of the conflict. And he asked me when I took up my duties to establish what became the economic policy unit in the mission directly under my office. And that was coincided with the time that the prime minister, Mr. Siraj, had requested the secretary general to set up an international audit of the central bank, which was a divided institution with a branch in Tripoli and in the east. And so we really sort of started to build a relationship with the central bank and then more broadly with the divided financial institutions. The first early step in how we leveraged that ceasefire agreement in September was an initial modification of the exchange rate, which really, for a while, improved the liquidity crisis. You had lines outside the banks all over Libya, where particularly women would stand for hours and hours, 16 hours, just to try and withdraw a very small amount of money. And it was quite needless and at the same time heartbreaking to see this happening in a country with the largest oil reserves in Africa. I want to move on to 2019. In the spring of that year, General Hafta's forces launched an assault on Tripoli. And you learned that the White House, both National Security Advisor John Bolton and President Trump himself, had been in touch with Hafta around this time. What was going on? There were two calls. There was one from Mr. Bolton, I believe, prior to the assault on Tripoli, which apparently was something like, we're okay if you do it, but do it quickly, no casualties, or very few casualties, which was taken as a green light. And then the second call was sort of to hail Haftar as a counterterrorism partner. Regardless, obviously, I don't have a transcript of the calls, but the impact on the ground 
and frankly, on the course of the conflict was direct because Mr. Haftar already had the support of many prominent countries. And then to have the U.S. and the person of the U.S. president come in behind him like that was a shock. It was definitely stunning. The Security Council, which was already dysfunctional, became even more dysfunctional and almost entirely silent. And the U.S. policy didn't really start to correct itself until September that year when there were reports of mercenaries from the Wagner Group descending upon Tripoli and the impact that that had directly on the conflict and the devastation that that wrought, particularly in southern Tripoli. I want to fast forward a little. The international community meets in Berlin in January of 2020. But despite commitments made at that conference, foreign fighters and mercenaries remained on the ground in Libya. A UN-facilitated political meeting in Geneva in February that year didn't go well. And then in March, Hassan resigns due to ill health. It was a very delicate time for you to take over as acting special representative. What was going through your mind then? Well, we not only had, of course, the continuing conflict, the son's departure coincided with the onset of the pandemic. So, of course, it became really virtually impossible to conduct any physical meetings of the three tracks that had been established through the Berlin process, the political, military, and economic tracks. So everything moved online. The conflict continued for another sort of two, two and a half months after Hassan departed. But we were determined to sustain and maintain the Berlin tracks. And so we went into the Zoom culture. We initiated all of these uh, meetings via Zoom, both with the international community, but most importantly, with the Libyans. So it's a difficult start to 2020. As you say, you've got the pandemic layered on top of that. Uh, and whether, you know, through these Zoom meetings or, or other means, you know, by the late summer, you start to make some progress. And I know it's complicated, but if you can summarize for the listener the key moments from your perspective, which started to take things forward. So, I mean, one of the ironies of the Libya conflict was, of course, it was the foreign interference uh, which really propelled the conflict initially with the many countries who came in on the side of Mr. Haftar as he decided to launch his attack on Tripoli in April uh, 2019. But yet it was also foreign interference, and this time on the part of the Turks in favor of the GNA, which pushed Mr. Haftar out of Western Libya and to what became this stalemate in central Libya running from Sirt to Jufra. What that did, that de facto cessation of hostilities that started in June and has continued to this day, essentially, is that it actually gave the Libyans space to start talking to each other. And so I jumped on that. I said, okay, now is the time to see if we can begin quiet conversations between uh, key Libyan parties. And so I consulted with the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, and they agreed to help me with a very quiet track two process that saw several meetings take place in Geneva and then led to a meeting in Montreux. In between, there were, as an output of this track two process, both Mr. Aguila and Mr. Siraj 
produced ceasefire declarations in late August of last year. So basically the opposite sides of the conflict, civilian faces of the opposite sides of the conflict. And the confidence that was built between the different parties led to the invitation for more political forces to join a meeting in Montreux. And the Montreux meeting laid the foundation for the decision to convene what became the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum. But I'd have to say in between that, of course, Mr. Siraj made his declaration that he wanted to leave office. He wanted to turn the presidency and the premiership over to a new entity to be determined by the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum in keeping, of course, with the Berlin Conclusions and Resolution 2510. So it sounds like there was a military stalemate of sorts over the summer, and you tried to leverage that to restart things politically as well. I should say for full disclosure for our listeners that the organization you mentioned, the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, is an organization I also work for. I want to talk, though, about the ceasefire that's agreed in October by the 5 plus 5 Joint Military Commission, made up of senior military officers from both sides. It's really a remarkable achievement, given the two sides wouldn't sit across the table from each other initially. What changed in your view? I have to credit the Libyans themselves, and I also have to credit my team. Our team really sustained this discussion with the Libyans. So when we went into the Zoom meetings, they were not even meeting jointly on Zoom. They wanted separate calls with the mission. We did that. We continued to talk to them. They, I think, just became more comfortable and at the same time became more comfortable with the process and they became less comfortable with the persistent foreign interference in the country. And the fact that by October you had 20,000 mercenaries, you had a number of Libyan bases either partially or fully occupied. Look, these officers in one way or another knew each other very well. And I think that both teams came to the Geneva meeting in October ready for a deal. And then in November 2020, the first round of the Libya Political Dialogue Forum, or LPDF, is convened, bringing together 75 participants, handpicked by both sides and the UN. How did you make sure that this group would be seen as legitimate in the eyes of Libyans? About 35 members of ultimately the 75-member LPDF were from the two chambers, the House of Representatives and the Higher State Council. And we maintained the initial structure of the 13 plus 13 members from the two chambers that were selected based on the 13 electoral districts of Libya. And particularly the Higher State Council had held elections inside their chamber to designate the representatives to the LPDF. With the HOR, it was less smooth, I would say, because of the sharp divisions. They're basically, the House of Representatives is divided into four groups. But in some way or another, they produced their 13 elected representatives. Unfortunately, out of the 26, there was only one woman. So that was immediately a problem. I wanted there to be more women representing the legislatures. So we invited some women to join us. And then we rounded out from the 35. So we basically invited 40 of what became known as the Unsmill Block. There was geographic diversity, the different ethnic and social components. Of course, more women, youth, 
NGOs, civil society, human rights activists, and sheikhs, uh, tribal sheikhs were invited as well. And then I decided, well, it was the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. 75 sounded like a good number to cap it at. You mentioned there uh, a process by which you've got representatives from both sides of the political divide, as well as those who've been chosen by UN, UNSMIL, the mission in Libya. I'd like to ask you more about the women that you referenced, um, because they were more included than in previous iterations of the political dialogue. How did you achieve that? I aimed for something like 30% representation of women. I fell a little bit short. I think at the end we had 23%, but we have a gender unit in the mission, which was helpful. But we also knew a lot of very, very capable Libyan women who could bring specific expertise. So one sort of subset of the LPDF is we have quite a number of lawyers. And amongst that group are a number of very, very powerful women. And so as a whole, I would say the women punched well above their weight in the LPDF in Tunis, they were unanimous in coming together and demanding and formalizing this demand for the new United Executive Authority to appoint no less than 30% women in senior executive positions. And that means ministers or deputy ministers. And there was in the conversation in the room in Tunis, there was a specific point of not pigeonholing women into the, you know, social affairs ministry, but to put them, in fact, in the important sovereign ministries, foreign affairs, defense, finance. And did you face resistance when you were, you and this block of Libyan women were pushing for that? No, not at all. Not at all. There was not a single note of opposition. And and why do you think the women were so effective in this case? Because you see other processes where there are attempts to include them, but they're not able to achieve, you know, the objective which which was uh, reached in this process of thirty percent of posts being reserved for women. Well, I mean, in addition, of course, uh, to coming together as a block, they also served as bridge builders between the different political forces, both the women and the representatives from southern Libya, because, of course, southern Libya is the most sort of deprived region of the country. And they're the ones who can uh, really gain the most from a political settlement. And they have traditionally in Libya played the role of brokers, of mediators between other competing factions. That first session of the LPDF in November achieved a huge amount, uh, including a roadmap to elections uh, to be held on 24th of December, 2021. But in November, you stopped short of running the process to select an interim executive that would run the country until the elections. What did you fear might happen if you were just pressed ahead? What I saw was, look, there was a great confidence, an overwhelming embrace of the selection of December 24th, 2021, this year as the National Election State, Libyan Independence Day, and the 70th anniversary, which, by the way, was the suggestion of a remarkable young parliamentarian from eastern Libya. And he came up, Abdul Salam Shoha came up with the date. He came to me and I said, OK, let's put it to the floor and it was taken up right away. So look, it was embraced very quickly. And they felt very good about that. But underneath, there was still, look, there was a huge lack of confidence and trust still present. And as we moved the discussion into the United Executive Authority, 
I believed, I felt that it wasn't ripe. There was a lot of nervousness and I did not believe it was my role to force an outcome, that this needed to somehow be organic, stemming from the membership of the dialogue itself. And so I said, okay, let's conclude with, you know, we've, we've gotten one half of the roadmap done. We will move back to the virtual sessions and hopefully be able to reach this uh, selection mechanism for the new executive. And you push for that selection process to be as transparent as possible. And, and one of the milestones in this process was a two and a half day live stream meeting in which candidates for top positions were made to present their platforms to over a million Libyans tuning in and take questions from them. Tell me more about the decision to run the process like this. The demand for uh, transparency goes back really to September, October, when we started to build the LPDF, because at that point, I decided to establish three subtracts to the Libyan political dialogue forum. One was a women's subtract, then we had youth, and we had the municipalities. There are 130 some municipalities in Libya. I had conversations, Zoom meetings with all the subtracts leading up to the dialogue in Tunis. We then had members appointed from the subtracts to brief the LPDF prior to the meeting in Tunis. We also used this innovative structure of a dialogue that was put together by the Innovation Unit in New York called a digital dialogue. We did five digital dialogues leading up to uh, the LPDF in Geneva early in February. And the response from the Libyans was overwhelming. Like each dialogue had over 1,000 participants. And I participated in four of them. So we took all of that in order to sort of say, hey, you do have this body, which is not entirely uh, elected. You have 35 elected representatives, but the remainder are essentially unsmill picks. You need to let the sun shine on the process. And you need for them to realize that they are accountable ultimately to the Libyan public. So we just built on the transparency. And then by the time we got to Geneva, I said, look, we want to make as much of the proceedings here open to the public. And then I said, we're going to make them present to the LPDF and we're going to live stream it. And in addition, I'm going to do another digital dialogue the night before the LPDF convenes in Geneva, and I'm going to solicit questions for the candidates. So that's the basis upon which we proceeded. It turned out that those interactive sessions, which were broadcast live on UN TV, picked up by all of the Libyan channels, went to ultimately 1.7 million viewers, almost a third of the population in Libya. Turns out the Libyan public enjoyed watching their political class at long last face some tough questions and to be directly challenged on their record. And turns out that Libyans started to call it the national barbecue session. Because these politicians were facing the heat for the first time. Exactly. <laughs> they were challenged to uphold the roadmap, the election state, to accept the results of the selection process, which is key if you look at the history of Libya over the last 10 years, where there's been so much rejection of political processes and elections themselves. And this was all 
captured, you know, <laughs> on television, but they were also made to sign pledges, which the UN put onto it, the, the website. So it's somehow the candidates are held accountable and there is more LPDF ownership. And I believe, and there's polling coming out now, which indicates that there is a strong a Libyan public buy-in into the process something upwards of 68% of Libyans polled approve of the UN process that led to the selection. And they have high confidence in the new executive, which is good. And then we have the international community embracing this new executive. So there's quite a lot of momentum now that has been built. I'd like to look ahead because Libya has a new prime minister designate, Abdul Hamid Dabeba and a three-member presidential council. And together, they'll run the country between now and elections at the end of the year. What do you think could go wrong between now and then? Before Mr. Debeba takes over the reins, there are a couple of things that needs to happen. One is he has to form his government. You know, now is when the roadmap charted and agreed in Tunis really becomes critical. This is what takes the country from now until the elections on December 24th of this year. And it provides the checks and balances. The LPDF members themselves become guardians of the process, and the LPDF remains a very relevant and needed institution. So Mr. Debeba, from the date of February 5th, has 21 days to form his cabinet. That's his deadline. So this cannot be an extended process. This is an interim, temporary, unified executive He needs to focus on a technocratic cabinet, and I believe he is being counseled on this, is also to draw in from the talent that was present. There were many candidates who put themselves forward who were highly capable. So, I mean, I think that would just be a politically smart thing to do. So he forms the cabinet. He presents it to parliament. Parliament has to endorse it. That is also quite a challenge because, as I said, the parliament is divided. But I think this is where also, frankly, the United Nations can use its convening power to help the Libyans come together and approve this government quickly. And then the government takes over. And the government has a certain period of time, very discreet tasks, and most importantly, preparing for the national elections. 77% of Libyans want these elections. And they are indicating that they are going to engage in the electoral process. So this is, I think, all very, very good news uh, for Libya. There's been broad agreement that foreign fighters and mercenaries should have left the country, but thousands of them remain. You said bluntly, you know, foreign troops were flown in, they can be flown out, but they haven't yet. So what's your message to those governments who are violating their own agreements on this? I've always said, listen to the Libyans. That's what I've done in Geneva. You know, the Joint Military Commission has now met since Geneva on a number of occasions. They're in their seventh round, just wrapped up in Sirte. They are as determined as ever to see this foreign interference come to an end. Listen to them, respect them, and respect your commitments made in Berlin and your commitments under the UN arms embargo, where this activity is specifically prohibited. I'm sure it'll take time for you to process everything you've been through and reflect on it. Uh, But even so, I'd like to ask, looking back on your work, is there anything you wish you'd done differently? It's a good question. I wish I had had the opportunity to travel more in Libya. 
I never made it to Sebha and I had wanted to spend more time in the South. I just had wanted to spend more time on the ground. I mean, I think what sustains all of us is our contact with normal Libyans, average Libyans, not necessarily the political class, to visit more municipalities, to listen, to listen to the local leaders who are really trying in very difficult circumstances to deliver for their population. We started this interview, Stephanie, with you recalling the experience of when you were in the U.S. government flying into Libya. Coming from a background where you work for a powerful government and then turning into a situation where, for example, with foreign fighters, you can see flagrant violations. And despite you highlighting that publicly, it still goes on. Did that ever lead to moments of frustration on your part? Big time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's uh, at times I would say the cynicism of the international community became a, a little bit difficult to absorb. But I felt, and really this is where I think we were able to use the courage of the five plus five, you know, these general officers that came together in October in Geneva. To agree the ceasefire. To agree the ceasefire and to speak out, to speak out about the need to restore Libya's sovereignty and independence of decision-making. They felt this and they feel this, they continue to feel this quite deeply. So how do I channel that both to the international community by lifting their voices, but also how do I use their courage and determination to push the political class? In a sense, the military, no matter how fragile the military institution is in Libya, is ultimately not going to go anywhere. But the political class is much more fragile because an election comes, many of them are ushered out, and a new political class comes in. So they were the much more challenging uh, group to deal with. So I had to take the progress and the determination of the five plus five and use that to put pressure on the political class. And then also, frankly, when we saw that there was forward movement and the economic track with this decision for the central bank to convene board meetings again after six years, the unified budget, at long last unifying the exchange rate to take that and also to push the political class. So these tracks are very interrelated at the end. I want to try to imagine a scenario, Stephanie, in December later this year where Libya's celebrating its 70th anniversary of its independence, uh, elections that will be held. If you were to be there at that point celebrating with your Libyan friends, looking back at your own involvement, what will be the one personal moment that you'll cherish as the most precious? Well, I always go back to the group of 17 women. It was the last day of the dialogue in Geneva. You know, they, we all came together and we took a photograph. And I have to say, I'm still in touch with some of them personally to encourage them to continue to really transform and make the LPDF the instrument that will keep the pressure on the institutions to get the country to elections. So if they are able to do that, then I think that this process will have fully been realized. And that's, I think, going to be the ultimate gift to the Libyan people. On that note, we must end. Stephanie, thank you for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you so much, Adam. That was Stephanie Williams in the Mediator Studio. In next week's show, we bring together two former enemies from Colombia. 
Sergio Jaramillo and Victoria Sandino, who set aside the bitterness of the past to negotiate the historic peace agreement between the government of Colombia and FARC rebels. To get new episodes as soon as they're released, make sure you subscribe. The Mediator Studio team loves hearing your feedback and suggestions. If you have a moment, please fill out our very short listener survey. You can find the link in the show notes and on the website. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the show is produced by Christopher Gunnis. Neither peacemaking nor podcasts happen without lots of work behind the scenes. My thanks go to our whole production team in Geneva, Evie Krasner, Rosie Fowler and Giles Pitts, and in Oslo, Elizabeth Schlattum, Ellen Fadness and David Jordan. I do hope that you'll join us next time in the Mediator Studio, but until then, that's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.